0: It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. It's Rico near time as the offseason continues to really do nothing. A few moves over the last few days, a couple of moves that maybe in the back of your mind you had the Mets targeting. Three starting pitchers come off the board. Aaron Nola resigns with the Philadelphia Phillies. Lance Lynn gets a one-year contract. And Kyle Gibson, one of the guys I thought would be a decent fit, also gets a one-year deal. So three starting pitchers off the market, plus the posting period for Yamamoto has begun. So over the next 45 days, we will hear rumors. We will hear this team's interested. This team's offering him this amount of money. This team pitched him on this. And then hopefully in the next months or so, we'll get an answer on Yamamoto. We'll discuss all three things. The pitchers coming off the market. Jeff McNeil finally getting his car from Landoer. Who's going to be the bench coach for Carlos Mendoza? The Mets meeting with Luis Severino. The Mets promotional schedule. And of course, we'll open up the mailbag at theRico B at gmail.com. Let me start with the starting pitchers that came off the market. Number one, Aranola. Aranola signs a long-term deal. He stays with the Philadelphia Phillies. And I think what was clear based on, A, the contract he signed, B, how quickly he signed, was that you were going to have to really overpay Aaron Nola to get him to leave the Philadelphia Phillies. He had a preference for staying, which, you know, as much as we may not like Philadelphia, you got to respect. He didn't want to leave. He ends up signing a seven-year, $170 million deal. I thought he was going to get $200 million, and maybe he could have gotten $200 million, but he wanted to stay. So to me, this is an open-and-shut case. Aaron Nola has a great value for his dependability, a great value for his dependability, a guy that will take the ball every five days, a guy that has had some very good seasons, and he's had some mediocre seasons. And I would think over the life of a seven-year contract, in his 30s, you're going to get a little bit of both. There's going to be some bad years. There's going to be some good years. And your hope is he would stay healthy and give you those 31, 32 starts like he has every year for Philadelphia. Is that the kind of player that you want to give close to $200 million to? Not really. Like, I'm all for bringing in dependable arms. It's why I was intrigued by Kyle Gibson, who is a poor man's, poor man's, poor man's Aaron Nola. Poor man. Did I, did I include enough poor man's? But Kyle Gibson signed a one-year, $12 million deal. There's a big difference between the two. And again, if you wanted to sign Nola, I know the Braves were hot for him and a few other teams, you're going to have to give him $200 million. So when free agents sign, and we all do this, we envision, should we have gotten that guy? We always play that game with free agents who sign. Should we have gotten that guy? Was that a miss? Did our team miss out on this guy? The Mets did not miss out on Aranola. Sucks he's in the division. Sucks we got to see him a bunch of times a season. Hopefully he doesn't shove it up our, you know what. But I am not crying about the Phillies re-signing Aranola. That's number 1. Number 2, Lance Lynn. Lance Lynn would have been a suitable back-of-the-rotation, one-year deal guys. See, here's what we have to keep in mind, because I got a few messages after Kyle Gibson signed. Uh, One in particular I read saying, Evan, why the hell did you want Kyle Gibson? This is from Tom Tulin. Tom writes, Kyle Gibson? Seriously, Ev? Why would you want a 36-year-old with a career 4.50 ERA, regardless of innings? Let's do a Lugo Michael Lorenzen, sign a couple of relievers that started in the minors, sign Jordan Hicks, make him a starter, Free the money if he can handle the load. 27-year-old with a 3-3 ERA last year? No. Use the $8 million savings for Reese Hoskins at DH. Seth Lugo is a nice guy to go after. Michael Lorenzen as a swing guy is a nice guy to go after. But I think where Tom and I disagree, and maybe a lot of us disagree, is there is a real value to somebody who's taken the baseball 32 times. Like, I'm not trying to tell you a 4-5 or ERA is something to write home about. And I think he was a little bit unlucky last year, if you look deeper at the numbers for Kyle Gibson. And the year before that, he had a 5 ERA, which wasn't very good, but his FIP was relatively low. His FIP is consistently, like, low 4s. And if you're getting 32 starts out of a guy, 32 starts, and let's say a low to mid-4 ERA, guys, there's a value in that. Not a seven-year deal, (laughs) not $25 million a year, but Kyle Gibson is one of the more reliable guys out there. Now, it may not be the reliability you like because it's a 4-5 ERA, which for some is not good enough, but keep this in mind. The Mets are going to have to fill out a five, maybe six-man rotation. You're not filling it out with aces all over the place. So I would have liked Kyle Gibson. I'm not crying about it. I'm not freaking out about it. We'll obviously you have to see how this plays out and how many starters they add and who they add and what the contracts look like. But if you would have told me one year twelve million dollars for Kyle Gibson, I'd have been great. I'd have been that's fine. So of the three starters that signed, Nola, Lynn, and Gibson, the three starters that have signed as of this recording, I'm probably more disappointed about not getting Gibson than I am the other two guys. That's the way I look at it. But there is a long off season ago. We have seen the Mets attached to Luis Severino, a guy who I have the app. He's the apple of my eye. Now, Severino is a very, very different kind of target than Kyle Gibson. Kyle Gibson is reliability with not that much of an upside. He is the perfect back of the rotation guy. I need a guy, especially after what we've seen the last few years, I need a guy who will reliably take the baseball every five days. Luis Severino is not that guy. There are three buckets of pitchers you can go after. And we went over this during our starting pitching podcast. And that is the top of the rotation guy, the reliable back of the rotation guy, but he'll give you innings. And then the high upside guy, the guy who could give you nothing, could be a disaster, may never even make a start for you based on injuries or may lose his rotation spot in the middle of May, but can also be an ace. And Luis Severino is the definition of that. Because last year with the Yankees, he was atrocious. He was unstartable at times. He was so bad. Pitched to an ERA near seven, and that ERA got lowered over his last few starts. He was he was atrocious last year. No one's going to deny that. The year before that, when he pitched, he was damn good. He kind of reminded you of the all-star from 2018, from the guy who finished third in the Cy Young voting in 2017. So I like him in that bucket of high upside guy. And I like the fact that David Stearns is looking at him because You may have to give a long-term deal to certain guys, specifically Yamamoto, but I don't mind filling out the rest of the rotation with back guys who can give you kind of that high upside. The other move they made, which I don't want to get too attached to, because one thing we've learned about acquiring random relievers during the offseason is they may not be long for your team. Look at Penn Murphy, who they claimed two weeks ago. Then they lost him. Then the team that got him lost him too. They picked up Cole Salsler, who last year was you know, barely pitched for the Diamondbacks, but a few years ago with the Orioles, had a really, really good season. What do I expect from Cole Salsler? He kind of fits that mix, assuming he even gets the spring training because there's no guarantee. Uh, he's just another one of those bullpen guys who you kind of cross your fingers on maybe He's on the Major League roster, and maybe he's recreating what he did three years ago with the Orioles, but more likely than not, he's Jeff Brigham. He's here, he's gone, he has a moment, then we hate him, and then he's on a different team. But the Mets, after they non-tendered a bunch of guys, have a lot of room on that 40-man roster. So there's a lot of room now for David Stearns to work. The other thing David Stearns has done over the last couple of days and weeks is add to the front office. Add talent to the front office. Number one, Andy Green joins the Mets in a senior role in player development. Andy Green was a candidate for the managerial job. I don't think anybody was very excited about that. But when you take the job as senior role in player development, we all say, oh, yeah, fine. No big deal. I think the one that's most exciting, even though I'm not that familiar with him, is Chris Gross, who's now the VP of amateur scouting. What's exciting about him is where he comes from. That's really what excites us about executives. Okay, what team did he work for? Oh, he worked for the Astros, who develop young guys better than anybody else in Major League Baseball. Great, bring them in. So we've seen David Stearns go to work on rebuilding this front office. They're also putting together the coaching staff. The bench coach job is a big one. You figure the guy who gets that job is someone who's managed before. Willie Randolph would have been fun. Willie Randolph would have been intriguing. But it was always tough to imagine Willie Randolph taking this job, and he's not, according to Newsday, because he hasn't coached in a bunch of years. Obviously, he hasn't managed in a long time. That is a job that's a pain in the rear end. I mean, you're traveling all the time. He had done it before. I'm sure he likes Carlos Mendoza and could have been a good mentor for Carlos Mendoza. But at this point in Willie Randolph's life, does he really want to be living in hotels? So it would have been a nice addition if they could pull it off. But according to New York Newsday, Willie Randolph is not going to take the bench coach job. That leaves Phil Nevin. Phil Nevin obviously was not a great manager for the Angels. He's a fiery guy. He has experience as a coach. Sure, bring him in. The only prerequisite I think I look at when it comes to what do you want as the bench coach, I think he's really a guy that's managed before, especially when you have a manager who's managing for the first time. So we'll keep an eye on that over the next couple of days. The other positive news is that Francisco Lindor finally got Jeff McNeil his car. Yay! Yeah, that was a concern for some. Very own Pete Hoffman. Didn't like that. Thought that was a problem. What's Frank since What's Francisco doing? He's got to get McNeil a car. But he finally did it. A Ford Bronco. And I don't want to hear anybody complain about what kind of car it is. Bottom line is, he promised something to Jeff. I have no idea why it took him a year. No idea. You know, I lose a bet. Not that this was a bet. But I promise somebody something. I try to do it immediately. Immediately. But that's good, right? what does it mean? Does it mean they're not trading Jeff McNeil now? Does it mean the locker room is fantastic? Ah, uh, it doesn't really mean anything. But it makes some people happy. I'll tell you something else that doesn't mean anything. And I brought this up on the air the other day. And I said it because I was emotional. And I am an emotional guy. And when we do a Rico Bronia right after a Met game, I'm going to maybe be a little bit more emotional than I normally am because it's right after the game. I don't have time to let things marinate. When you have times to let things marinate, you know, you you start to be a little bit more rational. But when something happens immediately, it's tough to be rational. So yesterday, as we're doing the show, and by yesterday, I mean on the Tuesday Evident Tiki program, I saw an early look at the Mets promotional schedule, which as a season ticket holder and a father of two young boys, I love to see the promotional schedule because they love it. They love giveaways at City Field. Just like I used to love giveaways at the old Shea Stadium. And there were certain ones I was all pumped up about. Certain ones I was like, ah, it was great. As an adult, do I care about it as much now? Eh, maybe not as much. But I still care, especially as a season ticket holder. As someone that may have to sell certain tickets that are hotter than others. And so it comes out. I see the firework nights. I see the Mr. Met is in a London telephone booth night. I see the basketball jersey. I saw the rugby jersey. They're giving away a rugby jersey. A soccer jersey. My favorite one is the pickleball paddle giveaway. That is a, that's a must. That's number one on my list. But then I saw the player giveaways. And I saw Lindor. And I saw Nemo And I said, where is my guy Pete Alonso? And so it caused for about 25 minutes a little fretting, a little panic about where's Pete, where's Pete, where's Pete? Now, I had a chance to go to sleep, I had a chance to wake up, and I had a chance to realize that none of this matters. Okay, the promotions department is not getting word from David Stearns that they may trade Pete Alonzo. Now, if Pete Alonzo had a giveaway, would I feel slightly better? Maybe a little bit? Let's say they really get a Produce all these bobbleheads to then trade him? But it did cause panic at first. Because that is the cloud hanging over this entire offseason. You know, right now, it's all about adding. And I think the obsession of our eye is Yamamoto. Most Met fans have kind of come to terms that Shohei Otani seems pretty unrealistic. Even though he may be, none of us really know what Otani wants. But we have been told by the baseball insiders, the John Haymans, the Jeff Passons, that, yeah, Tony doesn't seem that hot for the New York Mets. Okay, so we've sort of accepted that. And our passion is Yamamoto, even though it's a guy we've barely seen. But for good reason, for the need of starting pitching, for the success of Kodai Senga, we have all kind of pointed our eyes straight at Yamamoto and said, that's our guy. But the cloud hanging over this offseason is trading Pete, extending Pete, or doing nothing with Pete. Those are the three options. Doing nothing with Pete is probably the likeliest scenario, but it's still going to cause that cloud to hover over going into the 2024 season. There's going to be a lot of questions. There's going to be more trade rumors depending on how the season goes. There's going to be a thought, oh is this Pete's final time at the Subway Series? Is this Pete's final at bat in this situation, that situation? So it's still a cloud. If they trade him, well, I think a lot of us are going to be very upset. Now, you could say, well, Evan, it depends on the return. Well, the return's going to be young prospects. we have no idea what those guys are. Well, we're going to look at ranking systems and say we feel good about it? Come on. Now, extending him? Oh, that would excite me. And I think most Mets fans. I don't think a lot of Mets fans are going to nitpick the contract and say, oh, my God, can you believe they gave that to Pete Alonso? No, I think we would just be excited that he's back. We'd be pumped up. So the Pete Alonso cloud hovers over. So when the promotional schedule comes out, and I'm breaking it down, and I don't see Pete, you can understand why there's a little bit of concern. Just a slight bit of concern. But we haven't heard any rumors about negotiations. We've heard no rumors about them talking. And truthfully, we haven't heard any rumors about trades. I mean, the only trade rumor that's come out over the last couple of days and weeks is that the Cubs think that Christopher Morel could be the centerpiece of a trade. Great. They could think that all they want doesn't mean it's going to happen. Let's get to some of your emails, the b at gmail.com. Noah writes, I'm lukewarm on the Mets pursuit of Yashinobo Yamamoto, and here's why. And I'm, all, I'm very much intrigued by this email because that is the universal target that Met fans have. We all want Yamamoto, and here's Noah starting an email off by saying, I'm lukewarm. Now, let's listen to his reasons and be open-minded. You've already acknowledged that the Mets would need to go to a six-man rotation since both Yamamoto and Senga are more comfortable with five or six days in between starts. That's fine for the regular season, but what about the playoffs? The goal here is to win a championship, and asking your two best starters to go five days between starts in a playoff series is obviously impossible. The alternative, asking your two best starters to all of a sudden pitch on regular or even short rest with the season on the line, seems like an equally bad idea. We might be able to make it work with one pitcher who can't pitch on regular rest, but not two, and certainly not our two best pitchers. That's just not going to work in a playoff series where you need to maximize your win potential in every single game. I'd rather see the Mets spend their money this year on workhorses who could take the ball every fifth day, a combination of Nola, Montgomery, Gray, or Gibson. Obviously Nola and Gibson are gone. That leaves Sonny Gray or Jordan Montgomery. So, It's an interesting point, and it's a good point, because we went over it with Senga this past season. Most of his starts came with an extra day of rest. He did not pitch on regular rest often, and he wasn't as effective. I think the goal that the Mets have to have, and it's the goal I would have, is that you are trying to ease these guys onto regular rest. So in year one of Yamamoto, who's only 25 years old, and in year two of Kodai Senga it makes sense to build a six-man rotation. But it also makes sense to ease both guys into pitching on normal rest. So eventually, let's say in three years, maybe two years, as Yamamoto is in the prime of his career, pitching on normal rest becomes the norm. Like, I don't look at the six-man rotation as a permanent thing because the Mets would have a rotation that's headlined by two Japanese pitchers. I think it's more getting used to it. Even Senga this upcoming year, I think there are going to be more days this year than last year where maybe he pitches on regular rest. And the reason I say that, even though I want to build a six-man rotation, is you may not permanently have a six-man rotation. If guys are getting hurt or guys are ineffective, you could end up in a spot where you don't have a six-man rotation or you're pitching Senga occasionally on regular rest to see how he reacts. So I get Noah's concern. Because obviously when you look at the postseason, you'd have to be ultra creative and it would hurt you to not pitch your best starters as often as possible. But I think A, your goal is to eventually have guys pitch on regular rest and B, you got to get to the playoffs first. As we learned this past year, you need to win games in the regular season. And I hate to get in the weeds on a divisional series because the Mets haven't participated in a divisional series since 2015. It's been a very long time. But when you look at the way things break down with off days, the guy who pitches game one and the guy who pitches game two are both options to pitch in game five. Because the guy who pitches in game one would actually do it with an extra day of rest. And the guy who pitches game two would do it on normal rest. So there are ways for you to maneuver it where you'd be giving whoever pitches game one to come back in game five with actually an extra day of rest. LCS World Series, much more tricky. Much, much, much more tricky. But in the wild card series and the divisional series, it's not as big of a factor. So if that's your only concern, Noah, I'd stay away from it. Micah writes, love the show. I need to know, was Craig Carton actually a Yankee fan or did he just do it for the show? (laughs) Uh, Come on, you know the answer to that. You damn well know the answer to that. I've got to answer it? Jimmy writes, hey, guys, if I'm David Stearns, I'm filling third base internally. We did that on our last podcast, went deep in a third base. If you haven't listened, go back into the archives. We focused on internal and external options at the Hot Corner. I'm filling third base internally, Jimmy writes. Evan, you hit the nail on the head on the last Rico regarding Luis Guillerme. His 2022 stretch playing every day is more evidence in what I believe. You cannot judge a player based on a platoon or part-time play. The Mets were so high on Beatty and Vientos. We bitched all year about them not getting playing time. Vientos will be 24. Beatty will be 25 to start the 24 season. Beatty has 391 Major League at-bats scattered over two seasons. Vientos has 254 Major League at-bats scattered through the 2023 season. Is that the sample size we're judging our prospects on? A spring training competition makes no sense considering Beatty had a great spring and uh, under-report year. Uh, I guess a bad year is what he's saying. Where they play is up to Mendoza and Stearns, but they need to play DH every day for at least four to six weeks. Keith always thought Memorial Day was a good time to evaluate, and I agree. Job security plays in a confidence and building a routine to handle the stress and speed of Major League play. I hesitate moving Mauricio to third base for two reasons. Number one, he showed competence at second. Number two, I'd want to remain in the middle infield in case, God forbid, Lindor goes down with an injury and Mauricio needs to take over shortstop. I want to trade Jeff McNeil, but for right now, he's the left fielder on my roster. I do agree that to determine Beatty, Vientos, and Mauricio, we need to see more. And I think we all agree on that. As bad as Beatty's season was last year, I'm not throwing him out. Am I trading him? I'm probably not even trading him because I don't think his value is as high as it could be. His value a year ago was a hell of a lot higher than it is now. And I'm not ready to say this is who he is. Just get rid of him. So I agree with you that you need to see more good and bad because it goes both ways. The good is he wasn't good. We still need to see more. And the opposite of that is, hey, that guy tore it up for a month. I believe he's the guy. No, you still need to see more. It's kind of like DJ Stewart. I know DJ isn't a prospect, but he had a great month and a half. Is that enough? To say, DJ Stewart's my everyday left fielder? Not really. So I think we agree, and I think most of us would agree, we need to see more. The question is, how do you determine who gets what job, and are you okay just handing it to them? When we say you need to see more, does Brett Beatty have to go out and do something before he gets the opportunity at the major league level to do more? What I mean by that is, okay, it's spring training. He has a bad spring training. You still handing him the third base job? It's a weird double-edged sword because as well as he plays in spring training, that's also not going to convince us he's the man. But if he plays poorly in spring training, are you comfortable saying you're the third baseman? I also disagree about Mauricio at third base. I don't think Mauricio playing third base as opposed to second base keeps him away from filling in Lindor at shortstop if something goes down with Lindor. It's his natural position. If he has to slide back over to shortstop – I don't think it'll be a huge issue. Jeffrey Benson writes, I want no part of Juan Soto. He's one of the worst defensive base runners in the league. The Mets should pivot to Fernando Tatis Jr. His contract is reasonable, paid to age 35, and will make less than the league qualifying offer for the next two years. He's one of the best defensive base runners in the game, and he's getting better every year. Two parts to this. Let's start with Soto, and then we'll tackle Tatis. Juan Soto is a brilliant, brilliant hitter. And he's 25 years old. So you can nitpick his defense and his base running, but we cannot just ignore his ability to get on base 42% of the time. His ability to hit 30 home runs a year. Assuming he can get back to the guy he was during his real big years of 2019, 2020, he's a guy who can hit over 300. He is a tremendous offensive player. So the part where you say, quote, I want no part of Juan Soto, I can't agree with that. Now, do I want to give up prospects for him when he's a rental? No. I disagree with my fellow Met fans about that. I am not, I don't have the mood right now to be trading key prospects for a guy who's a free agent after one season. Will I trade key prospects in a deal for Luis Robert Jr.? Yes. Yes, I'm in. When I read at the GM meetings that the White Sox are basically saying, hey, everybody's for sale. We're open for business. I'd be harassing them about Dylan Cease and Luis Robert Jr. You go make a super package for those two guys. Now, obviously, we got to look at which prospects you're giving up. There are some I don't want to give up, there are others I'm more willing to give up. But think about what you're getting in return. You're getting two guys who are controllable. You're getting a potential, if he's not already there, superstar outfielder in Robert. And you're getting an innings eater who's also young and in his prime and Dylan Cease. And both guys don't have to get paid yet. I'm not doing that for a rental. But that's different than Jeff saying, I want no part of Juan Soto. As a free agent next year, depending on how free agency plays out this year, there's a really good chance that's going to be our obsession. Really good chance. Whether he's traded to the Yankees or not, it doesn't matter. And that's my warning to the Yankees. You can go trade for Juan Soto. He's going to be a free agent. And when he's a free agent, maybe that's the guy Steve Cohen goes balls to the walls for. As far as Tatis is concerned, I just don't think he's available. So, yeah, you don't have to sell me on (laughs) why they shouldn't go after him. I don't think he's available. And that's what leads to this email we got from Ari. Ari, talking about our third base podcast, says, I'm surprised neither of you mentioned Jose Ramirez as an option at third base. Now, before I get into his email, because he wrote a whole email about Jose Ramirez, let's be fair about this. The reason we're not mentioning Jose Ramirez is because we don't think there's a chance in hell they're going to trade him. Remember, Jose Ramirez signed a seven-year, $140 million deal, which is a steal of a contract because he wanted to stay in Cleveland. He had no interest going anywhere else, and he signed until 2028, and that is an incredibly reasonable contract. The Cleveland Guardians, I would think, have zero interest in trading the guy. Would I trade for him, even though his body feels like one that won't age well? I still would, because as much as I can say, oh, I don't think his body's going to age well, you also have to follow the facts. And the facts of Jose Ramirez are very similar to Pete Alonso. He plays every day. Every single day. He's got an incredible track record, really, over the life of his career, where he's playing 150 games every single season. Every single season. And he's putting up really good production. And he's doing it as a switch-hitting third baseman. So, you don't have to sell me on Jose Ramirez. I I just don't think there's any chance that they would deal him. But I want to hear Ari out. Here are the pros of trading for Jose Ramirez. I think we already know them, but you know what? He put together a long email. I want to show him the respect. His familiarity with playing on the left side of the infield with Lindor, so you know there's great chemistry there. They loved playing together. Four-time Silver Slugger, multiple-time Gold Glove finalist, has five years left on a contract at a reasonable number, $21 million. Tito Francona retired, so maybe the Guardians will look to rebuild. Mauricio will probably never be the defender Ramirez is, but if Ramirez loses a step later on, he could move to DH, and Mauricio could move to third base, and Acuna, Jet Williams, is ready to play second base. Here are the cons. He's 31, so he's not that young. You'd have to trade for him. We'd be seeing Beatty and Andres Jimenez pulling off double plays and growing in Cleveland, and we'd have that what-if feeling. By the way, the con of Beatty and Jimenez being in Cleveland is not that big of a con. I'm not giving up on Brett Beatty, but if I literally had a realistic chance to get Jose Ramirez and Brett Beatty was the centerpiece of the deal, I mean, I'd be driving him to Cleveland. The the con is the fact that he's not available. And I don't buy that Cleveland's going to blow the whole thing up. I think they retool. And Ramirez is the one guy that they're keeping. Because Shane Bieber's probably gone at the end of the season. And we've seen guys come and go in Cleveland a lot. They, they act like a mid-to-small-market team. But Ramirez wanted to stay. And that's why he signed such a ridiculously team-friendly contract. And I don't hold that against him. Good for him. Guy wanted to stay in Cleveland. I don't think any of us thought there would be a human being that would want to stay in Cleveland. But Jose Ramirez did. So I don't look at him as a realistic option the trade market is interesting because we don't really know who's available via trade. Like there's a rumor coming out of Chicago that the Cubbies are talking about Bo Bichette. Like who would have thought Bo Bichette would be available via trade. But my rule for trades right now with the Mets is I am only interested in trading for guys that are signed long-term or have control over for the next multiple seasons. Now, Bieber, Burns, what about those guys? If I'm not giving up a massive return, and I think you have to, or I'm giving up a major league player because both teams are trying to win, that's why I threw out a few weeks ago. And again, I'm not saying they would do it. I have no idea. Would Cleveland be intrigued since they they always try to win? Even if they're losing guys, would they be intrigued by Jeff McNeil for Shane Bieber? Shane Bieber is a free agent at the end of the year. He's not coming off a great year, so I'm not sure where his value is in terms of prospect return. And if you're Cleveland, you are trying to win. Now you get back a guy on a reasonable contract, a guy who signed long-term, and a guy you could stick anywhere. Jeff McNeil could be in the outfield. Jeff McNeil could be in the infield. And he won a batting title two seasons ago. Would I be open to a trade like that? I would. Major leaguer for major leaguer, sure. That's intriguing to me a hell of a lot more than than giving up prospects in a newly built farm system for a guy who's a free agent at the end of the year. It doesn't mean I'm hoarding prospects. I'm open to trading prospects, but not for guys who are going to be free agents at the end of the year. That I'm not intrigued by. Corbin Burns, we talked about. If you can give up less because you're taking back a contract like Christian Yelich, great. Let's have a conversation. But what I don't want to see from this offseason, I'm not even worried about it because I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think David Stearns will do this. I don't want to see them trade keys to this farm system for guys that are free agents at the end of the season. If the Chicago White Sox are really going to tear that apart, there are a a bunch of, a bunch, really there's two guys. Eloy Jimenez doesn't do it for me either, though I have a little bit of interest in him. It's Luis Robert Jr. and Dylan Cease. Let's go. Now let's have a conversation. Now let's dig in at making a deal and giving up prospects. But the first domino, the first one we're all focused on is Yamamoto. A couple of quick things about that. He did get posted this week, 45-day window. We'll know by January 5th. We'll probably know earlier than that. I think as Met fans, what we need to see from this owner is the highest offer. If they make the highest offer to Yamamoto... And he doesn't want to come here, whether it's the pinstripe allure, whether it's the West Coast, whatever the reason is, if they make him the biggest offer and they don't get him, I think we'll be disappointed, sure. But I think we could at least walk away and say, all right, we got our billionaire owner and he's trying. You can't guarantee yourself every single free agent. What you can do is put yourself in position to acquire every single free agent by offering them the most amount of money. But you can't force someone to come to your team. So what I'm looking for in the Yamamoto sweepstakes is the highest offer. If Steve makes the highest offer, honestly, what are we going to complain about? We're going to say it should have been higher? Is that really where we're going to go? If they offer him 205 and he signs for 197 with the Yankees, are we really going to scream, Well, it should have been 220? Because I think there comes a point where it just doesn't matter. Guy doesn't want to be here. Now, none of us have any idea. Let's keep that in mind. I don't think any of these baseball insiders have any idea either. I think the only thing they know from sources, which I believe, is who's interested. The Red Sox are interested. The Mets are interested. The Yankees are interested. Sure, because there are leaks all over. There are leaks from the organization. I don't know if Otani, Yamamoto, I don't know if they're leaking anything out. I mean, Otani's done a great job of not letting any information get out there to the point where there was a story. If you leak something about meetings, he'll hold it against you. Which leads me to think we should plant fake stories. <laughs> it's like it's like dirty politics. Wow, the Dodgers just met with Otani and piss him off. So the Yamamoto thing is a giant mystery. I think what concerns me is if they miss out on him. And who knows if they will? I mean, it's, it's a coin toss right now. We know they want him. Uh, I got an email, but the guy told me not to read it. He said it's private. So all I'll say is... The Mets are really efforting to get Yamamoto. They're pulling out all the stops. I'm sorry. The email starts with, unfortunately, this inside scoop cannot be shared on the podcast. So I'm not sharing it. I'm just saying in the context, if you read further, which I did, all I'll say is all you need to know. Because I want to honor that email of you can't share anything on the podcast. That's fine. The only thing I will say is the Mets are really, really trying to get Yamamoto. Is that fair? All right. But if they don't, if they don't get him, make the highest offer, he wants to go to the West Coast. Make the highest offer, he wants to be a Yankee. Whatever the reason, he's not a New York Met. To quote Robert Sala, now what? And I think the now what is going to scare and turn off a lot of Met fans because I am convinced the now what isn't going to be what you want. Like, the now what is not going to be Blake Snell. The now what is not going to be Sonny Gray. I think the now what is going to be a major drop-off. And we're going to be talking about the Mets piecing together a rotation. Now, one of the other now what's is Shoto Imenga. Let me pronounce his name right. Shota Imenaga, who is another Japanese pitcher. He's 30 years old. He had a good year last year. He's not as highly regarded as Yamamoto. But the thing about Shota is we don't know. We don't know. Mets bring him in. What's our reaction? Our reaction is going to be, I hope he's good. Now, Hopefully he can be Senga. I mean, it's basically what you're thinking. But that could be the pivot. I don't think there are many major leaguers right now that they would pivot to. By the way, here's the information on Shota Iman, Iman, Imanaga. Imanaga. I apologize. We'll get it right if the Mets sign him. Trust me. First of all, he's a lefty. Start right there. He's a lefty. Last year, he threw 159 innings to a 266 ERA. 159 innings. The most innings he's ever thrown in a season is 170 back in 2019 with a 291 ERA. Very good Japanese numbers, a 296 ERA, but those numbers are not nearly as good as what Kodai Senga did. And what Yamamoto's done? Like, just to give you perspective. So, actually, I, I take that back. Senga's ERA in Japan was two five nine, so it's a little bit better, but not like far and away better. But is that the pivot? Is the pivot okay? We missed that on Yamamoto. Let's go, Shota Emanaga? maybe. And how do we feel about that, Mets fans? Because the truth is, what do we know about him other than what we see on Baseball Reference? It's the only thing we know. There's a few other international free agents to keep an eye on. There's a reliever named Wu Suk Go, who's 25 years old. That's a reliever, and the Mets could use that too. I think the mystery of the international player and why I think most of us lean towards the positive on it is that when you don't know something, there's the belief of maybe that guy can he be even better than we think. And Seng is a great definition of it because I don't think we thought in his rookie season, Kodai was going to have a sub-3 ERA. Like, he kind of came over and was better than we thought. Now, we were intrigued by him because of the upside. I think that's why most of us wanted him. I know I wanted him. Pete wanted him. But he kind of gave you the upside. He gave you the, wow, that's pretty damn good. But when you look at the American starting pitchers or the major league starting pitchers, I shouldn't say American, major league starting pitchers, if they miss out on Yamamoto, where do you really want to go? Because I don't think they're going to the top end of the free agent market. And again, I don't necessarily know if they're going to go after the top end of the trade market when guys are free agents at the end of next season. Email the pod anytime. We love reading them and interacting with you. The Rico at gmail.com. The Rico at gmail.com. On the next Rico, obviously there could be some with breaking news. Always wait for a pop-up Rico based on breaking news. But we're going to focus on left field. We're going to do a deeper dive in the left field position because we looked at third base. How about left field? What the hell have the Mets gotten out of left field over the last bunch of years? And right now they've got a hole. Is their opening day left fielder on the roster? Is it DJ Stewart? Is it Jeff McNeil? Or is it somebody they're going to add in free agency or trade? Or is it going to be Brandon Nimmo with someone else playing center field? There's a lot to get into when it comes to left field. And we'll post that coming up over the weekend. And there could be more based on breaking news throughout this Thanksgiving holiday. We appreciate you listening and downloading. Again, the email is therico_b at gmail.com. Have a very happy Thanksgiving from all of us at Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronio podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.